This is the Nostalgic Future Podcast, where the past is the only way forward. We're two guys in our 40s watching the world pass us by, and we know the only way we'll ever be relevant again is to somehow convince everyone to be as passionate as we are about our pop culture obsessions. We are your hosts, Joe Cook and Chris Marchand, and welcome to our first Beatles movie night, A Hard Day's Night. Well, hey, everyone. We are glad you've gathered here today to listen to us. Hopefully you've had a chance to watch A Hard Day's Night. If not, you can feel free to pause. But this is our first Beatles movie night at Nostalgic Future Podcast. It's the first Beatles movie in some ways is a film that has shaped not just music films, but film in general. Like this is the type of film that they discuss if you're taking a film class. And what's funny, if you read some of Richard Lester, the director's, you know, interviews, he doesn't, he thinks it's funny. It's like, it's, it's a movie that kind of came together in the midst of a lot of chaos. And yet here we are, we're talking about this iconic film, you know, hopefully you had a chance to watch it and uh, we're here to, to enjoy it. Joe, when, when's the, when's the first time you've seen this film? Do you remember? Oh goodness. I would say the first time and last time that I saw Hard Days, and I had only ever seen the movie once as far as I can remember. And that was probably when I was about 15, 16 years old. I, Uh, In our last episode, we talked about our origin story, and my mom was an art teacher, and one of the parents of the students uh, was a big Beatles fan and used to let me borrow some of their Beatles videos. And I'm pretty sure that she let me borrow A Hard Day's Night. And I'm thinking maybe also the making of Hard Day's Night documentary, which I also remember seeing around the same time. I watched the movie, uh, you know, as a teenager and enjoyed it, but that was the last time I'd seen it. And so it was kind of interesting to go back and approach this film, you know, 25 plus years later and wondering, you know, how did it hold up for me as an adult, you know, versus, you know, when I was a kid. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to talk about that with you today. So funnily enough, the first time I ever came in contact with it was maybe around the same time. Maybe I was like 17 or something like that. I have a friend, uh, Tim Rowden, Timothy Rowden, guy I went to high school with. He plays drums. I was over at his house playing music with him. I think maybe we were preparing for some kind of maybe church music or even maybe I was playing some of my own music. And he was he was like so excited. He wanted to show me this film. He's like, it's this Beatles film, A Hard Day's Night. And I was kind of like, Oh, uh, okay. Like it, it was almost like it didn't click. Like I didn't know what it was. And he puts it on and to him, it's the funniest thing ever. And you know what? It didn't click with me, Joe. I was just like, well, this is kind of weird. What is this? Like what's happening? I mean, the movie's kind of fast, right? It moves so at, at this rapid pace. I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't prepared for it. We didn't watch the whole thing. Uh, we eventually like, you know, got back to practicing music and stuff. But what's funny is I didn't really fully see it until years later. So it's interesting how things can find us, right? When we initially see something and it just doesn't work. It just doesn't like find its way into our heart. And then something years later, you, you click it and you go, wow, this is amazing. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because I loved the movie, and you know, as a kid, but I was definitely drawn more to the music. To me, it was like having a chance to watch, you know, an hour and a half worth of Beatles music videos with some little skits in between. You know, it's funny to say, because I I don't even know that I could even really remember what the plot of the movie was all like, what it was really about when I watched it again in this last couple of weeks. The story didn't really stand out to me. My memories, my affection was all for the music. 
So I don't know that the humor, you know, I was never, um, and we've talked about, you know, British comedy. I know you're a really big into British humor and, you know, British comedy. I know you love Monty Python. And like in my household growing up, that was never like a part of my life. It wasn't something I was really introduced to uh, through my family. It's not something that even today, like my wife didn't either. So it's not something that we engage in even now. So I don't know that the humor ever really necessarily caught me then either, but the music absolutely did. But it was not something I ever went back and watched over and over and over again. So that's one of the things that's exciting to me about what we're doing now is to be able to go back and revisit this area of the Beatles that even in my own way, I've sort of overlooked. So I'm really surprised because I thought you were going to have a deeper connection to it when you were younger than I did. So it's interesting to hear you say that it just didn't quite capture you. Well, that's what's funny about it. So I think maybe that's what we'll bring today is you'll bring some of the musical aspects, which I'm happy to talk about as well. But for me, the connection to British comedy is what stands out to me as I'm as I'm watching this. I've I've probably watched it through three times now, um, like on its own, if not more. And you know what? I think just chalk it up to my teenage brain. I was in the midst of loving Monty Python, but the connections weren't made. It was just it was too abrupt. Like it was like, well, over here is Monty Python and over here is this weird Beatles movie that I didn't really even know existed. It just didn't connect. Years later, I'm looking back on it going, oh my goodness, they were the first Monty Python, you know, like they were, they were doing Monty Python, uh, or, or, but actually they were, they were of a, of their time for sure. But we'll, we'll get into that before we get any further. We have an end of news segment that we want to, we want to share with everybody. Joe, Joe, you, you know, you, you, you shared something with me this past week and you know, I thought it was worth bringing up on the podcast. What, what bit of news do you want to bring to us today? Well, <laughs> by the time this episode's released, it'll probably be a few weeks, but it was really big news in the past week, um, of course, and that is the uh, sort of controversy among Bruce Springsteen fans. Like, uh, you know, Springsteen fans are kind of, they're kind of turning on the boss a little bit this week over this, um, I don't know, how would you describe the uh, the ticket prices for Bruce's upcoming tour next year like the word obscene comes to mind <laughs> <laughs> yeah super villain levels of extortion prices i mean you know like i think i am not a numbers person like i'm not like an economics person i don't get how all these things work but i just think if you're going to go to a rock concert you should pay 75 dollars, and that even sounds like a bit much <laughs> now i understand that there's different levels but it's just like, where are things headed in terms of the prices of tickets? And this is not anything new. I mean, this has been an issue for decades now. Pearl Jam was infamous for trying to go up against Ticketmaster, uh, Live Nation. There's all of these, this is an ongoing issue. It's not as if Bruce Springsteen is the sole contributing factor here. Well, the irony in this is, is that 10 years ago, Bruce wrote like this strongly worded letter about like the merger of Ticketmaster and Live Nation and how this was going to be a disaster for the industry and ticket prices and everything. And then, you know, a decade later, he's just part of the machine now. And it's unfortunate. And I say that as, as somebody who 
adores Springsteen. And this, it kind of hurts on a personal level. I love Bruce. Um, I'm from New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. Um, and Bruce is hands down the coolest thing about being from New Jersey. It's that and the Sopranos and we got nothing else. <laughs> you know I mean? We got, we got, we got the boss and we got the Sopranos and we, you know, it, it is a, like a religion, you know, Springsteen in the Northeast. And, and you know what? He's a working class man, isn't he, Joe? I mean, he is a man that fights. He brings awareness to the plight of the working class. And that's the part of this that I think so many fans feel betrayed about is that Bruce has built an image being the voice of the working class. Early in the morning, factory whistle blows, man rises from bed and puts on his clothes, man takes his lunch, walks out. The thing is, the guy came from, you know, a modest background, you know, and he Bruce Springsteen is where he is now because he busted his ass to get there. And you you can't deny that Bruce worked to become Bruce Springsteen. And he had a there was a deep connection and this almost like a people have almost said it's like almost like a contract between Bruce and his audience. And a lot of people feel like with this, Bruce has broken the contract. He's broken the trust because even though everybody recognizes, yes, Bruce is a multi, multi, a hundred times over millionaire. We all know that there is still that like recognition of Bruce knows me. He knows where I come from. He knows what makes me tick. And he sings to that. And until now, for the most part, people feel like he's never really broken that trust, that bond and that relationship between the audience and rock star. And this time here, it's pretty tough to justify some of these ticket prices. And I, and I have, I got to tell you, Chris, I went on to try to buy tickets. Um, you know, I, I live about an hour from Orlando and I knew this story before it broke. I was right there on the front lines because the, with the, the first day that tickets went on sale, they went on sale for the show here in Orlando. And I had the Ticketmaster app on my phone and I even got into the, um, you, you could sign up through your email to be, I can't remember what Ticketmaster calls it, but a verified fan, I think. Okay. And you get a pre-sale like three or four hours before the general public sale. And I got in the queue right when tickets went on sale and I was offered tickets to see Bruce Springsteen. I could have bought tickets. For how much? How much would you have been, would you have been in line for? Okay. So now put it in perspective. I'm going to tell you a little story. <laughs> uh, 20 years ago, I saw Bruce and the East street band on the rising tour. Uh, I saw him in Philadelphia. Uh, my friend, Steve Vassallo and I went, we got floor seats and they weren't like, we weren't right up front, but we weren't way in the back. These were middle of the road, decent floor seats to see Springsteen. And 20 years ago, we paid the, you know, the insane cost of $80. We paid 80 bucks a ticket to see Bruce on the floor. Comparable seats 20 years later for this show were 800 
hundred dollars. Mm. So please tell me, Joe. Joe, you didn't buy him, did you? I did not, Chris. Okay. Um, I couldn't. Ju- I couldn't quite justify the cost, and it was sad. I now to put it in perspective, Paul McCartney uh, was in Orlando a couple months ago, and you could get tickets to see Paul the week of the show. There were still tickets available for a hundred or less. Mm. Now that was a much bigger venue. That was at a stadium. This is an indoor arena. So 70,000 seats versus 17,000. And so that makes a big difference. But I mean, the fact that Springsteen tickets cost that much more than Paul McCartney tickets. I mean, it's, it's kind of jarring. And I think that's Mm. why, I think that's why so many fans are so upset about it because it's not like, I mean, I know that there's a thing going where the, you know, with demand and in the industry, people are getting ripped off. It's kind of pretty common to be ripped off for tickets these days, but this was kind of like worse than even the norm. These prices were insane. And then they did this thing where as I guess Ticketmaster does this thing where as the demand increases, they literally increase the price during the sale. So like the price started going up. So people were paying like $200 for tickets and then somebody else in the queue would get the same section offered and it's up to like $500. Like, like ridiculous. So all that to say, I know, Chris, I'm, I'm, I'm sad because I, I, I love Bruce Springsteen. I've seen him twice. I saw him on the rising tour. And then I saw you too, a few years later at the uh, Wells Fargo center in Philly. And Springsteen came out and jammed with you too for like 10 minutes. And it was like, it was like one of the most amazing concert moments in my life. And that concert a few years before, um, you know, during uh, the rising, I mean, to this day, Bruce Springsteen's not my favorite artist in the world. I love him, but he's not my favorite, but it's the best concert I've ever been to. Like nobody's come close to, just the uh, the raw energy and just an incredible performance between him and the in the E Street Band. Um, there was all the original members were still alive, so I could see Clarence Clemens and and you know Danny Federici, and it was it was just an amazing show and and one of like these great moments. And I would have loved to have bought tickets to you know take my wife and son to go see Springsteen, but I mean I, I don't know, man, like eight hundred dollars you know for a floor seat. How much did you say he stands to make from this tour? Like you looked that up, right? Potentially. Uh, what I saw was he's worth, estimated worth of about $600 million. He's worth yeah. about $600 million. And on a touring year, I think he can make like $90 million. Something like that. Yeah. So here's the deal. Here, here's my thought. And this, this is not a very pleasing thought for a lot of people, but I don't understand why Bruce Springsteen needs to make any money at all. I don't understand why it's even possible. So I'm all for his band. I'm all for his production people. I'm for whoever the people that need to make the money. Sure. But Bruce doesn't need any money. He should do this tour so that he doesn't even make anything. That's what I would say at this point. Easy there, Chris. You're, you're, you're stepping on capitalism here. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Bruce needs to step up to the plate. He, he needs to tell us, he needs to show us with his life. I don't need any more money. Bruce, Bruce, buddy, buddy, old pal, you don't need any more money, my, my man, my good, my good sir. And maybe some people in your band do maybe some of all the people that are doing your lighting and all that stuff. They need to, they need a paycheck. They need to feed their families. You, sir, have the food, you have whatever you need. So I don't know. I don't know what it looks like, but 
it's not going to be some indie band that stands up. It's going to be a guy like Bruce that has to stand up and say, this is ridiculous. Or it's going to be us as the fans that just don't show up. Don't go to his stupid show. That's what I say. Did you see um, the letter from Crowded House from a couple years ago? No, I don't. I don't. It's been going viral in the last week since the whole Springsteen fiasco. Apparently this whole, and I wish I could remember what they call it, but Ticketmaster has a, a, you know, they have a word for when they screw you over in the middle of a sale and they start increasing the price. (laughs) Um, And uh, apparently that happened a couple years ago during a Crowded House tour and Crowded House fans got upset about it and Crowded House um, you know, Neil Finn uh, released a statement. They had no idea that that was going to happen and they were really upset by it. And they actually pressured Ticketmaster into refunding, you know, any of the increased costs uh, that they used to like to screw certain fans over that if anybody paid above the original price that they actually got that money refunded. Unfortunately, <laughs> Springsteen's manager kind of came out with this statement of like, I don't know what all the fuss is about. Everybody else is doing it. Mm-hmm. Industry, he had this kind of like industry standard, industry protocol type of response, which is just about as as dumb as it gets, because that's not how anything works. You know, like we as the people, people in charge, the gatekeepers like them we have to determine whether or not we're going to abide by this kind of nonsense. And uh, th- again, this is where people start to step in and regulate industry, which people really get uncomfortable with, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do in this midst? Just don't show up. That's what I say, but whatever. You know, I- I've went on uh, the app for the Orlando show a dozen times in the last week, just to see if there's any change and all the, the concerts totally sold out, but now they have these like verified resell tickets that are like four times higher than the actual cost of the tickets. And the, the, the question I've had in my mind is like, how many empty seats are going to be in that arena that night from tickets that just don't sell because nobody wants to spend hundreds of dollars to go to a concert? Mm-hmm. And is that worth it? You know, is the system, I guess... As long as they're selling out and somebody's buying those tickets, I guess they just don't care if Bruce is playing to maybe three quarters of an arena instead of a packed house. I, I don't know. It's 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 a shame is, is what it is. And I'm really disappointed about it because, uh, you know, it's, it's an artist who's meant a lot to me over the years. And I know he's meant a lot to a lot of people. You know, even what you were saying, like, what options are there for Bruce in this? I mean, he could just stop touring. Uh, he can say, well, you know what, I'm just not going to do this. Or does this, does an artist like Springsteen have enough clout to just tell Ticketmaster, no, you know, we're going to set a cap on these prices if you want this tour. You know, is that is that realistic? Is that something he can do? Will they even tell Springsteen to go pound sand? I, the, the problem is, is that like every major arena and stadium and amphitheater has contracts with Live Nation and they basically have a, a monopoly on all major touring and so like what does springsteen do if springsteen wants to do a show outside this i guess he has to have his own ticketing system which is not the you know not that big of a deal but i i'm you know you got to implement something like that but where do you play do you do you get a field out in the middle of pennsylvania and have like bruce stock um you know where you play a big show for you know your fans and you charge them tickets at the door I guess that's the only option, right? Because like, can he, can Bruce Springsteen, like, can you get a baseball stadium to play without going through Live Nation? Right. 
Yeah. And how did that happen? And how did we allow that to happen? Exactly. Yeah. The whole thing, the whole situation needs to change. I live in Illinois. There's plenty of cornfields here, plenty of, <laughs> plenty of flat space. <laughs> We're available. <laughs> we'll get you a PA, buddy. Well, for what it's worth, there you go. Everybody has to make their own decisions, including you, Bruce. I know he's listening today. He's listening in close. Uh, but uh, who knows? You know, who knows? The, the future is left. I would call this late stage rock and roll. That Like this is a sign of the end. It's a sign that whatever is going to happen in the future with the industry, it's going to shift significantly because this kind of thing is not sustainable, uh, in, in my humble opinion. And so we'll see what happens. But, it, it, you know, it's up to somebody like Bruce to make these kinds of decisions. If, he, if he's going to keep on living into this kind of system, it's up to him. All right. So this has been an In the News, and we're going to get back to our discussion on a hard day's night. You, don't be soft. We just finished making our first feature film for United Artists. It's called A Hard Day's Night. Hey, Paul, well, tell them about the songs and that. And that. There's eight songs in it. Hey. Yeah, hey. I don't even see. For you. Don't be soft. It'll be coming to your theater. It'll be coming to your theater. <laughs> your theater. Why? Well, Joe, okay, so... <sighs> How do we break into this? I mean, one of the things that we joked about on our previous episode is it's not as if the world needs more Beatles commentary, right? You know, like there's there's plenty of this out there. I think maybe one of the ways that I want to jump in, I'm kind of partially basing this question off of my own experience, but I really want to know what you think. Like, are the Beatles still cool? And I don't mean that in the sense of, like in a general sense, yes, I get it. They're still cool, but are they too much in the past? And like our kids and even their children, are they even going to remotely want to take time to invest in this music and to discover it anew? I have my significant doubts and um, I, I'm starting to feel like being a Beatles fan is just another niche it's another sliver of being a nerd. It's like, I just happen to now be a Beatles nerd. And there's so much out there. There's no monoculture anymore. So even something as big and as large as the Beatles, it's just kind of like, oh, like, hey, hey, everybody. Hey, you want to watch a Beatles movie with me? And the answer is like, eh, not really. Why would I want to do that? And maybe here's one of the reasons I, I frame it this way. How does the movie start? It starts with Beatlemania. Like the whole premise of the film is people, young ladies, especially chasing them down, you know, wanting to rip their clothes off them, wanting to be with them every second. And now guess what? The world's moved on. Of course, the Beatles and the time capsule are cool. But what do you think? Are, are they, are, will, the, will the world still love the Beatles? Honestly, it goes back to a little bit of what we were talking about in, in the news. And that is the fact that, you know, a couple months ago, Paul McCartney, was here in Orlando and didn't sell out. Okay. 20 years ago, that wouldn't even seem possible. Paul, when I saw Paul at City Field in 2009, he sold out three nights at a baseball stadium. One night here, and there were still tickets left. Does that signify that the, um, the coolness or the hype is dying down? Well, I mean, in some ways, the audience is, is dying. So mm. I, I guess... You know, I, I guess maybe that is the case, um, yeah. that it literally, literally is dying in some ways. It, but it goes back to a question that, that we asked in our last episode, and that is, 
look look at what you just said about the beginning of a hard day's night. I think one of the things that makes a hard day's night work is that yes, you're watching a scripted film, but it doesn't always feel like it because the intense reaction to the Beatles in that movie is real. Those girls weren't acting in some of those scenes. When you watch the the big finale where they're playing the concert at the end, those were real Beatles fans losing their minds. That wasn't, they didn't have to like bring in extras and say, all right, everybody, now when they come out, we need you to scream as loud as you can. They didn't have to, there's no direction necessary. You brought those four guys onto stage, those girls were gonna lose their minds. The question that you know we asked on our last episode is, is um, something or somebody as big as the Beatles, and you look at Beatlemania and you look at the influence that they had on, on culture, on music, on our society, you know, even with, you know, a million people singing, give peace a chance, you know, to try to end the Vietnam War. I mean, like, when you look at the, the influence they had together and as individuals in culture and in our world, if the Beatles can die down and fade away, can anything last forever? I would argue that if the Beatles don't, I don't know anything can. Yeah. You know, you know, as I was sitting here thinking, I was thinking about things that endure on and on and on and on. So one of the things that immediately pops into my mind is Charles Dickens is a Christmas carol. It's a story that we tell every year. There's different versions of it. And so it still lives on, right? The thing about rock stars and movie stars, celebrities, is it's about them, right? So, and, and this is what, guess what I love almost more than anything about A Hard Day's Night is those four guys. I love those guys. But to a kid that was born in the year 2022, it's just going to be some guy that died a few years ago, like, you know, that died a couple of decades ago, or died 50 years ago. And so Charles Dickens, his story lives on because we can keep retelling it and reimagining it in different ways. It's different with celebrities. It's different with rock stars. Yeah, no, that's a great question because, I mean, do you think the novel, do you think the story, A Christmas Carol, would would anybody still be talking about it if there weren't 700 different movie versions of it? Exactly. Or, you know, it, it has been, like you said, it's been reinvented so many times that, you know, for me, I mean, my earliest memory of A Christmas Carol is Mickey's Christmas Carol, you know, the Disney version. Yep. And I've probably seen, you know, half a dozen, you know, different film adaptations, you know, over the years. And this here, like, you, you can't remake A Hard Day's Night. You just can't do it. I mean, you can try and you come up with Spice World. I mean, you know. But... Oh, 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 I see what you're saying. Um, to make a, a documentary-esque comedic film about a rock band. Is that kind of what you mean? You can use the formula and you can make something like it, but you can never really recreate that again. And so, like, that's like lightning in a bottle right there. And it's a unique film because of that, because that movie couldn't have happened any other time or place than where and when it happened and how it happened. Like you could never make that movie again. Even two years later, you couldn't have made that movie. Two years earlier, you couldn't have made it. That movie only could have happened in the summer of 1964. And so it's this beautiful slice of history right there. And it's also fictional too, um, yeah. at the same time even though it is and it isn't. 
Yeah. So, so Lester actually goes into that. He talks about, he, he, he really kind of complains about people doing parodies and, and trying to copy the style. And one of the reasons he says it is because we didn't have a style. I just made this film. Uh, now, yes, they planned it out. Uh, you know, there was a script. It's not as if it was just some random thing, but he thinks it's silly that they try to find the to break the formula of a hard day's night. Now, here's what's interesting. I, you know, like how many looking back, like especially thinking about different like comedies types of things. There are so many different parodies of this film that have happened over the years. Uh, people trying to recreate the style because it's so iconic. But here's what I would argue is yes, recreate the style because it's brilliant. But when the Beatles themselves fade from our memory, we're not going to remember the style because the style itself will die with the Beatles. That, that's kind of my, that's kind of what I'm thinking at least. You know, we should talk a little bit about how this movie came to be. I mean, you know, United Artists, when they financed this movie, didn't even know, they weren't sure that the Beatles had enough staying power to justify making this film. That's right. And they almost didn't order enough like prints of the film to go to enough movie theaters when it opened because they weren't sure how well it would do at the box office. What they knew would sell was a soundtrack album. And because United Artists had their own record label, if they financed the movie, it would give United Artists Records the rights to a Beatles album. And so they offered to finance the film, even if the movie was a loss, they knew they could sell a record big enough to justify the making of the film. And so that's the only reason the movie was made was because they wanted to make a Beatles record. And so let's talk about the, the, the soundtrack for a, a moment. A Hard Day's Night is a great album. And it, it's another one of these things we talked about in the last week about how there was an American version and a British version. And I've always been more familiar with the British version, which is a full Beatles album. Um, there's less songs on the American version. And then there's like, the score by George Martin, the instrumental tracks that George Martin produced are, are also kind of sprinkled throughout the record. Do you have a Hard Day's Night, Chris? Is that like, like an album you're like super familiar with? No, not really. No. So my thing is, is like, I have all of the Beatles records from Revolver on, and then it's those early years that I'm pretty sketchy. And so, no, I, I wouldn't say for me as an album that it, that's not how it exists in my mind. Whereas you know, 75% of the songs I'm super familiar with though. So but like, you know, like George's song that he sings, I, I, that was written by Paul and John. I wasn't really familiar with that song. I didn't really know it that well. So the interesting thing about A Hard Day's Night, the album, is that it's the only Beatles record that's completely written by Lennon McCartney. Right. There's no songs written by George or Ringo on it. There's no covers on it. It's, it's the only Lennon McCartney record that exists. And it was written because United Artists agreed to finance a movie. And they said, well, we need six or seven new songs for it. And the Beatles were going on vacation or holiday <laughs> to the uh, Caribbean. And they said, well, while you're there, we need you to write some songs. And they ended up writing like, I don't know, like nine or 10 songs that became the soundtrack to A Hard Day's Night. They still hadn't written the title track yet. That came later. But the bulk of that record they wrote then they came back to a recording studio, recorded it, and then they went over to America and they played the Ed Sullivan show. And then 
like all hell broke loose in Beatlemania and life was never the same for them or the world or, you know. And so it was planned. The, the movie was planned. They had started planning things and writing it in 1963 when they were really starting to gain some momentum and United Artists wanted to cash in on that. But then it was this perfect storm in America and the Beatles became the biggest thing in the world. And then they came back from America and they immediately started filming A Hard Day's Night. And the incredible thing to think about is Ed Sullivan was February 1964. They came back after that and filmed the movie. It was released by July of 1964. That movie was completed and in theaters just a few months after it was made. I mean, that's something you'd never see today. Yeah. And I don't quite know how to explain the film in, in the sense of like how it became. It, it, again, it's, it's amazing how this as a time capsule was able to capture us like so powerfully like it, it it shouldn't have happened the way that it did and maybe like for me like I think about the opening shot and, and so like the initial shot of the band running towards us is actually only the three of them when I immediately see that it's like oh I'm in a documentary that's what I feel like that's what it, that's what it seems like but then when you start to get into it you're like wait is this a documentary and of course it's not and so that's part of the magic of this film is that you know uh the writer uh, whose name is escaping me do you know who the writer is <laughs> i can't remember off the top of my head and i poor uh, guy here he deserves a lot of credit i think his script is brilliant uh mr name that i don't know and I, I think i mentioned earlier there is a documentary it's just called the making of a hard day's night if you can get your hands on that i think it's on the blu-ray check it out it would a wonderful hour-long uh documentary on that film and it, it gives you a lot of great background info they interview a lot of the people that helped make that movie the actors that were in it so anything anybody that we forget we're sorry but there's a there's more than enough information out there mr alan owen mr alan owen uh, I'll, oh, okay. I'll, you know for for the sake of his legacy <laughs> he deserves a lot of credit and what they've offered us is a look into their life. And so it is this merging of slight documentary feel with sketch comedy. Hello. Hello. Oh, wait a minute. Don't no, I'm not. Oh, you are. I'm not. Oh, you are. I know you are. I'm not, no. You look just like him. Do I? You're the first one that said that ever. Yes, you do. Look. No, my eyes are lighter. Okay. All right, Noddy. Oh, Who knows? Yes. Your sure nose is very. Is it? Well, I would have said so. Oh, you know him better, though. I do not. He's only a casual acquaintance. That's what you say. What have you heard? It's all over the place. Is it? Is it really? Mm, I wouldn't have it. I stuck up for you. I knew I could rely on you. Thanks. You don't look like him at all. She looks more like him than I do. I believe what they did too, and I think it was—I think it was this guy you're talking about, Alan Owen. United Artists said, "Well, what do you want to make this movie about?" And they said, "Well, we just want to make a day in the life of the Beatles." And the exec said, "Okay, well, well, what is a day in the life of the Beatles?" <laughs> and he said, "Well, I don't know." So they said, "Well, go spend a day with them." And he came back, and you know, the update he gave them, he's like, "Well, basically, the Beatles are prisoners of their own success." He said. These guys can't do anything. He said they can't even enjoy 
the fame that they've achieved, can't enjoy the success that they've had because they are just confined to themselves all the time and they can't really go out in public and they can't do anything. And they said, that's the movie we, that we need to make. Mm-hmm. And so when you watch the movie, the first you know, third of the movie, the Beatles are, are intentionally in closed quarters in every scene. They're on the train. They're, you know, they're in the train car together. They're in little office rooms. They're never anywhere. And then, of course, the big moment where the movie shifts is the Beatles escape. And that it's the, you know, where they start playing Can't Buy Me Love and they're running outside and it becomes big and open. And that was intentional. It was to build almost it was almost to build anxiety in the movie that they're just closed in. And it was to make it feel intentionally suffocating. And it really works. It, it actually, mm-hmm. it makes that moment beautiful when they actually escape. And it, it's like, you can almost breathe the fresh air with them. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the film is really fascinating because it's a film made for Beatles fans. It's a film made for all those kids running after them and screaming at them at the concerts. And yet it's also half mocking them the whole time. So I, I think this film walks this delicate line of playing with us as fans. Like, and you know what? What shines through is their personalities. They're so sincere. They're so, they're authentic to themselves that they actually cause us as fans to lighten up a little bit. They maybe actually help us to realize, you know what? This is all just kind of a joke <laughs> and just enjoy it. Just, you know, enjoy your life. You don't need to become an obsessed Beatles fan. It's, it's so interesting how the film does that. Like it helps us to just lighten up, take our uh, fandom a little less seriously and just enjoy it for what it is. So what, what do you think about that? One of the things where I think they did that so perfectly is there's this great scene where they're having a press conference. You remember yes. the press conference part of the film? It's, it's a great scene. Do, do you know the background on that scene? On how that, why that scene exists and how it came to be? Remind me, remind me. Um, and, and I actually wish I could totally remember the story. I don't, I know there was a filming issue where they basically, I think they were surrounded by this, this insanity of fans outside and it was making it difficult for them to film what was scheduled that day. So they decided to do the press conference scene instead. And so they invited, that was the real press. They invited Mm -hmm. real reporters in and said, hey, we need to do some filming. Would you guys do this? They actually just let the Beatles roll and are kind of like as they're trolling those reporters during that scene. And it's some of like the the funniest dialogue in the movie. It's hilarious. Tell me, uh, how did you find America? Turn left to Greenland. Has success changed your life? Yes. I'd like to keep Britain tidy. Are you a mod or a rocker? Uh, no, I'm a mocker. Oh. <laughs> uh, what would you call that uh, hairstyle you're wearing? Arthur. What do you call that collar? Oh, a collar. Oh, do you often see your father? No, actually, we're just good friends. How do you like your girlfriends to dress? that was really them just messing with reporters and being themselves and them just rolling film on it and it's such a and and so there is a certain like authenticity in in how they were approaching the uh absurdity of Beatlemania uh and and some of that actually comes through in a very real way and and when I was talking about before how well what is a day in the life of uh 
of the Beatles look like? And, and well, the, the guy came back, he said, well, they are in their hotel room and then they go to a press conference, then they go to the show and then they're back to the hotel room and then it's on to the next show. Mm-hmm. And like, that was their life. And so on paper, that doesn't really sound very interesting. Yeah. But it, the execution of it was perfect. And one of the things that they did was it is a very personality driven movie Mm -hmm. um, where they really played to these, even if they're just these perceived images of the Beatles and their personalities, they really wrote for it. And and one of the things that um, they mentioned in the documentary, which I I didn't think about this when I was watching it, but it's so true. There is no big scene really of dialogue for any of the Beatles. Their lines are never more than a line or two each. And it moves so fast paced because they knew these guys had never made a movie before. They didn't know if they could even act. Mm -hmm. So they never let them talk too much at one time. And it worked. You mentioned um, like uh, kind of Monty Python or or even to the time. It's actually, it's very Marx Brothers in how they they did the yeah. influence that I think yeah. that, that they're going for there it was it was almost harkens back to that kind of humor, um, mm-hmm. even more than necessarily than say like you know maybe some of the later British humor, mm-hmm. um, and maybe in a way maybe a hard day's night was uh, groundbreaking in in some ways uh, or influential certainly um, you you mentioned like how it, it's been taught in film school um, I, I know that they interviewed Roger Ebert and he talked about how he had taught that movie on at least five occasions to film students and had seen it like, like 25 times himself. Yeah. Maybe I'll have more to say about the the cinematography, the the images in in a little bit. You mentioned the Marx brothers. One thing that as I was watching it through once again, it reminded me of is 30 rock the, the the television show 30 rock because it's quip after quip after quip after quip and it's almost like the jokes are falling on top of each other and sometimes you can't even keep up with the jokes and you have to re-watch things like two or three times to even hear everything and it reminded me of tina fey's writing uh, during 30 rock that is actually a great observation i never never would have occurred to me but the pasting is very similar the pace the pace yeah yeah and so that that first section of the movie it's just one thing on top of another and it's almost not even till you get with uh, um uh, Paul's grandfather is sitting in the, one of the train cars with their two tour managers you know the, their tour manager the road manager and they're they're having this debate and they, they they determined that paul's grandfather started this argument amongst them you want to watch it well it's not my fault you stick to that story son i can't help it i'm just taller than you are they always say that well i've got my eye on you i'm sorry norm i can't help being taller than you well don't rub it in have a good mind to thump you shake hey if you're gonna have a barney can i hold your coat he started it i did not you did well what happened the old fella said that could he have these pictures and Norm said no and all I said was, well, why not be big about it? And? Your grandfather pointed out that Shake was always being taller than me just to spite me. I knew it, he started it. I should have known. Do you are. You two have never had an argument in your life. And in two minutes flat, he's got you at it. He's a king mixer. He hates group unity, so he gets everyone at it. It's not even until that scene where you just begin to like catch your breath a little bit because everything is moving so fast. And, uh, and yeah, I, I think that opening sequence, you know, in, within the train sequence is just so brilliant, like, like uh, comedically, and it's just quip after quip and how personality driven it all is. You're right. 
let's talk about his grandfather for a bit. What, Wilford Bramble, I think. Wilford Bramble. And for us, here's one, here's one of these funny things. We have no idea who that is, but if you were, a, you know, a British, you know, kid growing up at the time, this guy was on TV. He was, he was, a you know, in a lot of comedic roles. I mean, look at his face, right. You know, just a, as goofy as it gets kind of face. I don't know enough about him, but like I actually, Richard Lester says, that the grandfather part of the plot is probably the weakest part. And what they were trying to do was to create some chaos in the midst of their day. So he was, he's always kind of the, the agent that throws things off a bit. So he's always there to make it a little bit interesting. And Lester, you know, he wasn't fully pleased with that element of how the movie went. But nonetheless, you can see, I mean, you know, the Beatles themselves are comedic relief, but guess what? Grandpa is the co comedic relief. What, what do you make of this guy? He's such a goon. You know what? When I was a kid, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things like that I remembered um, that stood out to me uh, from the story was, of course, Paul's grandfather. I always thought it was just as as a 15 year old watching, it, I thought it was just bizarre that his grandfather was a character in the movie. Like and it was just Paul. There's nobody else, you know, in the Beatles had anybody, you know, that was related to them there. And I just thought, well, this is bizarre that and it's not really Paul's grandfather. It's an actor playing his grandfather. What I remembered was the um, one. And one of the only things I remember about the story was the running gag of him being a clean old man. He's a nice old man, isn't he? He's very clean. Clean though, isn't he? Oh, he's very clean. Very clean, isn't he? Lord John McCartney, the millionaire Irish peer. Filthy rich, of course. I don't know. He looks quite clean to me. What a clean old man. Well, I'm clean. Are you? And, and I got to tell you, as a kid, it never even occurred to me that that was a play on the, the him being the opposite of a dirty old man. Like, I never got the joke that that's what they were that they were riffing on uh right. I, I never i never understood that joke but i thought it was funny that they just kept doing it and it, it never occurred to me oh oh dirty old man okay there <laughs> so, which um i thought he was delightful i mean you know he was uh, a funny uh he was the villain of you know there had to be a villain in the movie and he is the the least menacing villain they could have possibly come up with for a movie that fun yeah now I'll say this as a type of comedic element that's ongoing in lots of different types of comedy is old man humor. Like, so I think there's something to that. We don't really talk about it very much, but just like putting old men in things, usually men that we don't even know who they are. Like they're not even well-known. Um, I mean, maybe I'll list a few things that I, I particularly like. Uh, there's Tim and Eric show, uh, which is a really strange, absurdist kind of comedy. Um, and a similar sketch comedy called I Think You Should Leave that I know you've seen a few episodes of, but they, they use old men. They'll bring in old men and it's just weird. It's just weird. Um, I would also argue, and you're going to like this one, but Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul use old men. Uh, Mike Herman Trout. <laughs> yeah. Like just kind of like there's something weird uh, about an old man who's uncoordinated, who looks schlubby or has an ugly old face and people use them. <laughs> in their comedies i mean i would you know look over the years when 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 that's an that's something that's brought in and as a comedic relief it's it's just kind of funny i don't know so there's that element of it one thing that i was thinking of too that i think is really interesting about the type of humor 
is that the Beatles at this moment were part of the counterculture and yet they were also kind of trying to appeal to everybody. You know, so they still looked nice. They they still looked put together. They hadn't fully embraced their weirdness yet, at least, you know, as far as their music is concerned. But there's elements in this film that are kind of strange regarding like the counterculture. I mean, so like, for instance, there's this one moment on the train where John has a bottle and he like sniffs the bottle like he's sniffing, I don't know, cocaine or he's sniffing some kind of drug. And it's just such a weird little moment where you're like, oh, okay, like, is this okay to be in a film like this? There's another moment where they mention orgies, you know, it's it's just like it's like what in the world like you know i thought this was like a pg kids film you know it's gone to my club has he yeah it's all your fault what? getting invites to gambling clubs and all that he's probably in the middle of some orgy by now orgy and so there's just a lot of weird i mean they're girl crazy like they're chasing women everywhere uh looking for women so there's just like this is a strange time of uh, in culture, right? Where the counterculture was meeting mainstream culture. And uh, did you catch Patty Boyd in the movie? Uh, George's first oh, wife. Of course. Yes. Uh, Patty Boyd. Yeah. George Harrison's first wife. Yeah. She's one of the girls on the train. One of the, one of the workers on the train. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think, I think they met during that scene. If, if I remember correctly. Sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, they couldn't help themselves uh, being around women. So it's just interesting how this is like a family story. It's very tame. It's very playful. And yet there's all these elements that are like, if, you, if you're spotting them, you're like, kids, kids, cover your eyes. <laughs> kind of moments, which is just funny. Well, the interesting thing is too, is remember like at the time, John Lennon was married. <laughs> <laughs> and and also and and I think I think had, had already had Julian by that point, so okay. uh, was married with a family and is clearly playing a fictional single version of himself in that movie. Kind of, I mean, they don't yeah. never never necessarily come out and say it, but they sure don't acknowledge his his family in that movie. <laughs> yes, that's that's a good point. I, I didn't even think about that that he was married at the time, but that's probably infamously like, you know, like kind of having to portray this image of themselves. It's counterproductive to what they were trying to achieve with that movie. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Oh, what, what did you think about the imagery and how, how did it, uh, like, uh, how's it, how do you think it's good that it was in black and white? I mean, Roger Ebert says it w we wouldn't be talking about it today if, if it was filmed in color. I think he's probably right. And I think the only reason for that is because it was, it was a mockumentary. It really, I mean, it was, you know, it's a fake documentary. And I think the fact that it was in black and white, I don't know, did something to just give it that feel. It, it makes it just feel a little bit more of its time. I don't know. I guess in some ways, just because it's Beatlemania 1964 and everything I know about Beatlemania 1964 is in black and white, makes it feel like it's just a perfect representation of that time. So like, to me, it's like I can watch the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show and get the same feel as I do watching the Beatles perform in A Hard Day's Night. They claim that it was an artistic decision to make it in black and white, but at the same time, it was also cheaper to make it. Like, I mean, they could have very easily in 1964 made a color movie, so it's kind of interesting that they didn't. So part of me wonders how true the artistic part of that is and how much of it was that they were just on a budget. Yeah. 
But for me, it kind of holds up nicely in black and white. And I, I kind of, um, I just kind of like the feel of it. What did you think? Well, a couple of things. Um, I, I, I think it's just, it's so gorgeous. It's so beautiful. Like there's, there's, there's a number of shots throughout the film. Um, there's a couple of shots when the Beatles are coming outside of their theater and they're looking for Ringo. And there's these like four pillars, maybe three pillars. And just the way that Lester like framed those shots. There's another shot when they're being chased by the police and there's this man trying to steal a car. And in the background, they talked about it on the commentary, by the way, they, they tried to find like dilapidated rundown areas of cities. And so like, you know, like they, they kind of, they framed those shots and they, they found really interesting landscapes within the city to film. And then that's where they filmed them being chased. The way that those shots are framed are just really, really beautiful, like in cinematic and, um, you know, even Ringo's section where Ringo's <laughs> walking all around, he's, he's down by the canal. Um, it, it, it looks like French New Wave film. It has a different feel to it. That's a beautiful, uh, you know, segment of, of the yeah. movie. And, and yeah, well, I'm glad you touched on that because it's um, it, it's such a drastic change of pace in the movie. Yeah. But it works. It, it slows down just enough for just long enough to make it interesting before you get back into the insanity. Yeah. It's almost yeah. like that calm before the storm that is the end of the movie. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about that segment is, it, you know, what's funny, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like John gets a few little scenes that kind of highlight his personality. George gets this bizarre, you know, yes. uh, you know, he, he gets sent into some kind of tastemaker's office to see like, what are cool clothes that the kids, what are the trends, you know, help us find it. Now you'll like these. You'll really dig them, that fab and all the other pimply hyperboles. I wouldn't be seeing Dad in them. The dead grotty. Grotty? Yeah, grotesque. Make a note of that word and give it to Susan. It's rather touching, really. Here's this kid trying to give me his utterly valueless opinion when I know for a fact that within a month he'll be suffering from a violent inferiority complex and loss of status because he isn't wearing one of these nasty things. Of course, they're grotty, you wretched nit. That's why they were designed. But that's what you'll want. I won't. And then so then Ringo gets his segment. I don't know. if Does Paul get a segment? I don't think he really Paul, does. Paul gets a grandfather. So Paul gets a grandfather. That's true. There's something to that, I guess. So anyway, they all get their own little segments. But Paul kind of gets the short shrift, I think, and all of that. But here's one thing. I was listening to the commentary. And strangely enough, the commentary is with some of the, the cast and crew, but not, not nobody prominent, you know? So it's a lot of the people that were kind of like production designers and all that kind of stuff. That's the same thing with the documentary film. They interviewed everybody except the Beatles. Yeah, except the Beatles. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I almost wish there were two commentaries because I was fine with their commentary, but I wanted kind of some, some other perspectives on it. One of the things that they said towards the beginning, which I actually disagree with on them, but you have to realize these are people that were there. <laughs> uh, they said, oh, look at it. It's timeless. It hasn't aged a bit. And I go, um, well, actually what's appealing about it is it's a time capsule. So I think part of the black and white, it helps to capture that moment. So like you said, you think of this black and white Ed Sullivan era of the Beatles, whereas guess what? Some of the next stuff we're seeing is the rubber soul revolver era of the Beatles where they're starting to get more psychedelic, you know, gradually speaking. And 
I disagree with them. I think it's it is truly dated, and maybe this is part of the reasons why I think it's both beautiful but also liable to be forgotten because it's going to be a black and white movie that kids are going to be like, nah, I don't want to watch that. Why would I watch some old black and white movie? They're not going to realize what 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 it is. But but yes, it that is what makes it iconic. It's the time capsule element to it. Well, I will tell you, I did. Uh, force my family to watch this movie <laughs> and I, I would be honest with you, I was more nervous about watching this with them than I was get back and get back I you know was eight hours long and I should have you know been really concerned uh, but get back was the Beatles in their element and it's I knew it was going to be mostly them you know performing and it was going to be like just you know a few nights of seeing the Beatles create music I hadn't seen A Hard Day's Night in years. I couldn't really remember if it was as good as I thought it was. And yeah. I couldn't remember how good of actors the Beatles were. And I was, I, I knew how highly regarded the film was, but I was kind of concerned that, you know, my, my family was just going to think this is really stupid. But I knew it was going to have great music. And my son had, had already heard the Hard Day's Night album and he liked that. So I knew that they had enough appreciation for the music that I said, Hey, let's, Hey, I got to do this. You were going to, I got to watch this movie for the podcast. You guys want to watch it. I didn't make them, but they were like, sure. We watched it. And (laughs) so I will tell you what I think their reaction was to the movie. I, I would say for the first 10 minutes or so, there was a little bit of head scratching, you know, in those scenes in the train car where you're kind of like, getting to you know know the Beatles and this world they're in and the humor's a little bit jarring and, and different hello grandfather hello he can talk then can he of course he can talk he's a human being isn't he well if he's your grandfather who knows <laughs> I would say within 15 minutes or so into the movie I noticed that my wife and son started laughing and consistently laughed through the rest of the movie. And at the end, my wife said, that is really good. (laughs) It was the first time she'd ever seen it. And she really enjoyed it. My son really enjoyed it. And yeah, now, great question. Could a 15-year-old boy who knew nothing about the Beatles watch that and enjoy it? I don't know. I mean, I've introduced quite a bit about the band to him maybe more than the average kid and he's heard all of their records and he's seen Paul twice. And so like, maybe not, but even still, I wasn't sure he was going to like that because the humor I knew was going to be a different kind of humor than we're used to watching in our house. They both loved it. I was really pleasantly surprised by how much they liked it. And I got to tell you the truth. I felt the same way about myself because I didn't know as a 41-year-old if I would enjoy it. And to be honest with you, I liked it a lot more now than I did at 15. I mean, my son was the same age watching it that I was the last time I watched it. And I have a much deeper appreciation for it now as a film. As a kid, I think it was just a chance for me to see the Beatles and get to see this other side of them and to see them perform these great songs. Mm -hmm. I didn't really understand how good of a movie it was at 15 as much as I do now. Right. So the plot is loose and and Richard Lester himself says he, he sees the movie in sections. So it's kind of like these vignettes. 
at the same time, if you really, you know, slow down and kind of start to think of these jokes and how the one-liners are flying, you start to see how tightly constructed it all is. There's a few shots in the film where they'll change a scene and then there'll be a close-up on a book. Then they'll zoom out from the book. So like there's like a mad magazine at one point. And there's another point when Ringo is with grandpa and like Ringo's reading a magazine and all that stuff. So like, a, a, a anatomy of a murder is the book he's reading. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. There's all these, and there's, what I'm saying is, is there's consistency and Lester can talk about kind of doing this on the fly, but like, if you were to just take the music videos themselves as constructions, like they are just beautiful mini masterpieces, even the ones when they're in the TV studio and how he utilizes technology and to get different shots, you know, looking into the monitor itself first. And I don't know, there's just, yeah, the way that Lester constructed it and edited it together is just utterly brilliant. I think I saw an interview with him where he mentioned like, you know, 25, 30 years later, MTV actually gave him some kind of award or something, you, you know, for, for basically being an innovator of, of the music video. Yeah. Yeah. So it's worth it studying the, when they're when, when the can't buy me love starts and they're coming down the fire escape, like the shots through the fire escape, uh, the, just the beauty of those images. And uh, yeah, you know, so there's, there's a lot to unpack there. No, it's not, it's not that we're saying anything new. I don't know. Like if I were to say to my kids, here's a comedy troupe, would they still find this funny? You know, if they didn't know it was the Beatles, I don't know. I don't know if they would. The energy in the the opening sequence during a hard day's night where they're running is actually pretty intense. I mean, it actually, in some ways, you're kind of watching it wondering how much of this is real and how much of this is staged. And if they, you know, if they don't run fast enough, are these girls going to just tear them to shreds? Like you're almost yeah. a little scared for them watching it. Yeah. yeah, it's a beautiful, the opening shot is beautiful. The laugh uh, that John gives, like, it's, it's just, it's a real moment. And George is kind of, you know, like, did he hurt himself? Is his arm going to be okay? That type of thing. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating scene and the frenzy of it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about the finale because what okay. we basically, what we're building up to is there's, they're, you know, they're just trying to get to this TV studio to rehearse and then they lose Ringo and the big drama, the big, you know, crisis of the film is we've lost Ringo and what are we going to do? Cause we got to go on in an hour. Then of course the big finale is just a concert. It's just the Beatles performing a bunch of songs for a bunch of fans and there's not a whole lot to say about that, but, you know. It feels like a TV special, right? Uh, it feels like if we have been let in on a day in the life of the Beatles, then now we, we get to actually just watch the TV special. Like, it finally happens, right? I don't know. For me, it was maybe, like, the least compelling part of the film. But, like, I'm kind of interested in the, the filmmaking elements. And so this one seemed the most conventional, straightforward. In all of the Beatles documentaries that I've watched, I have gotten kind of sick, maybe because the Beatles themselves get sick of it, is all the screaming. I'm just kind of like, yep, there they are again. They're always screaming, aren't they? That sequence, that end sequence, it was fun. It, I enjoyed it like I enjoy watching Ed Sullivan. But at the same time, it was it was probably the least compelling part of the film for me. So um, a similar reaction, except the funny thing is when I was a kid, it was like one of my favorite parts of the movie because it's like, oh, I get to see a Beatles concert. When I watched it this time, I was going, oh, 
they're lip syncing <laughs> just miming the records sure. and yeah. of course they are that makes perfect sense of course they are because it has to sound perfect but it's like um like okay yeah this this is what this is this is like i get it i get it but it, but it was a, you know but they had to do it i mean at the same time if they hadn't done that the movie built up to nothing so in a way it, it made sense and it also is part of that time capsule that you're talking about of course, in the summer of 1964, the, the purpose of that movie was to bring a Beatles concert into every movie theater, you know, around the world so that every teenage kid could, you know, pay a buck or whatever and go see the Beatles in concert. That was the goal and it was, it was achieved and uh, it, it only works because there is so little story in the movie. Yeah, I guess what you could say is like with the typical teenager, they gave everybody what they really wanted at the end. And all the comedy and the shots, that's for us to unpack as we begin, as we learn how to actually appreciate the Beatles and appreciate the filmmaking. One thing I noticed watching was there, there was very, um, a very little subtle, I guess, look into the um, power struggle is the, is the phrase that I want to use. But like they very subtly let, you know, George and Ringo know their place in the band. Uh, mm. versus John and Paul even despite the fact that Ringo got this whole beautiful segment of the film and George got his scene musically <laughs> this was yeah. a very much a John Paul movie and again the soundtrack completely written by John and Paul um, but George only sings one song in the film and Ringo sings no songs in the movie like you don't see him singing but did you hear Ringo singing? Because there is a segment of a song. Oh. Of, uh, during that, there's this sequence uh, where they're at a dance or something. Yeah. And they they kind of, they they escaped their room and they wanted to go party down in the hotel lobby or whatever. Yeah. And they're, yeah. they're all dancing in there. And there is a brief snippet of three songs. And this is, to me, oh, yeah. this is, yeah, yeah. This is, this is the most subtle dig at Ringo and George in the entire movie is that they played a snippet of a song that George was singing, followed okay. by a, a snippet of a song that Ringo was singing. These were not songs from A Hard Day's Night, the soundtrack. Okay. These were old Beatles songs. These are like songs from like With the Beatles. Okay. Other than the concert at the end, it's the only place in the movie where you hear music that's not from A Hard Day's Night. And yeah. they play a piece of a George song, they play a piece of a Ringo song, and then the yeah. third song at the dance is paul singing all my loving and they play the entire song yeah okay that's funny that's funny i i was actually wondering about those songs because i didn't get, take time to look them up to see like where they fell because i was wondering about those i'm trying to remember which one george sang i know ringo was i want to be your man uh, yeah which would, yeah but uh yeah but I, I just i noticed like i thought well, this is weird. I thought they uh, they didn't even play these songs in their entirety. And then and then I, I thought for sure when they came back with All My Love and they were just going to play a piece of that too. But they played the whole freaking song. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Along those same lines, there's so many digs in the movie to Ringo. Like they talk about his nose. They talk about how short he is. The, you know, his, his, his hooter. His hooter, yeah. If you're, you know, like Paul insults him, you know, like, you know, he can't help it. He's born with it, you know. Oh, man. Anyway, so it is kind of funny. Like, I guess they're just trying to, I don't know, maybe find the comedic elements. But it also seems to be like these little digs, right? 
you know so yeah but then he he got his uh his payback when they brought him in like 10 times as much fan mail as the rest of them there you go there's a little bit of that yeah <laughs> you know and george he remains the mysterious one he's his own unique person and so that, that's what i take away from his scene where he will not bow to whatever the trends are of the day and what's the, i guess that that's part of the irony of the beatles is are they the beacons of counterculture and authenticity or are they the most mainstream commercialized band of all time? And George to me represents like, I just don't know. I, I, I don't know at the end of the day, you know? I think Bruce Springsteen is the most mainstream commercialized band of all time as of this week. He's, he's proven <laughs> I'm going to call it. $5,000 a ticket. It's you, Bruce. It was you. Yeah. George would still be at home just tending to his garden, probably, if he were still alive. So, <laughs> oh, anything else you want to discuss? Anything that comes to mind? You know, I, I just really enjoyed myself. I have to say, I really yeah. in, I enjoyed watching that movie. And I don't think it's going to be another 25 years till I watch it again. Yeah. So for me, watching the Get Back documentary, one of the things I realized is that I just love them as personalities as characters and i know they're real people but i just love what they bring you know and so when i when i was done with get back i thought oh, i want another season of the beatles give me another season so watching a hard day's night is just a reminder of like yeah i just I, i'm I, I will be prone to put on a beatles film just because i i just love being it's comfort food for me i just love being with their personalities i love i love their interactions i love them as characters if there was a new season of the beatles i would watch it which by the way uh peter jackson talked about some kind of project that he's working on with ringo and paul i don't know what that means uh maybe it's some some kind of creative interactive thing we'll have to see but I'll, i'm there for it right i i will be watching whatever that happens to be yeah, people are, there have been all sorts of speculation online. Well, what is this going to be? What is this new secret Beatles project with Peter Jackson? And, uh, you know, some people were saying that they were hoping it was going to be the Beatles in India and doing a documentary on that. Hmm. And uh, which there was some sort of fascination with these home movie footage of in the India trip that we did see in Get Back, the little mm -hmm. br brief segment where, you know, we, we did have to endure some Mike Love footage in that part of the go. documentary <laughs> but uh that's right <laughs> which i remember whichever you say you thought like well he was the golem of peter jackson's yeah, get he just back shows up was, yeah <laughs> he was the Lowe. golem of peter jackson's film <laughs> <laughs> so i i don't know i have no I, I think there's no way of knowing but um it, you know with peter jackson and the beatles involved i'm going to watch it and yeah. i look forward to it <laughs> and um but yeah man it, i i hear you like you know like Maybe it's just, you know, the Beatles being the Beatles. It's it's uh, I think where that's going to come into play and that theory of yours is when we start watching some of these weird, odd, like little Beatle related projects, you know, or when we get to uh, give my regards to Broad Street, Paul's, you know, <laughs> movie is it, from a, the is it enough 80s. to sustain our interest? Right. Yeah, yeah. Can the Beatles just being the Beatles themselves do it for us? Or are we going to go, yeah, this movie's just pretty bad. Does the charm run a little thin, you know, after a while is the question, right? You know, but yeah. it, it definitely did for a hard day's night. There was a, it was an, it's an incredibly yeah. charm is, the, is a great word. That is a charming movie. Yeah, it is. And it's fast. Whereas when we get to Magical Mystery Tour, there are some great moments in that, but 
it's a little more jangly. They're, you know, it, they they didn't quite have it. Uh, the writing it was a little bit lazier in terms of what they wrote. And well, when you were talking about slow, look, I mean, have you watched Let It Be, the original film? No, no, I haven't seen it. I've not, I've only seen clips, and uh, yeah, so it's a slow movie, right? Let It Be is a very slow movie, and uh, it, it's amazing to me how much more interesting the eight-hour Peter Jackson version is than the two-hour Let It Be. Like, it doesn't make sense that I could be so much more engaged for eight hours, but it's just the pacing is everything. Wow, yeah. Yeah, so it, it, we'll, we'll have to go see as we as we journey through these different Beatles films. We'll, we'll jump from thing to thing. We haven't decided what we're going to do next time we do a Beatles movie night, uh, but we'll, we'll get there. Maybe maybe it'll be one of those uh, early, but actually acting movies like from John Lennon or, or from Ringo. We'll, we'll see what, what we come up with. Hope we enjoyed our, our conversation. And, uh, you know, if you haven't gotten a chance to go watch Hard Day's Night, go watch it and uh, catch us on Twitter, Past Future Pod at Twitter. Start a conversation. What you think about uh, A Hard Day's Night? What were your impressions of it? Would, what, you know, is there, are you a music person? Or are you the comedy person? Or are you cinematography? Anything like that? Joe, any final thoughts? My last final thought is just one thing that I, I had wanted to bring up is it's hard to believe, like, do you know, that? have you read the story on the background of the title track, the song A Hard Day's Night? Yes, I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They just didn't know what to call the movie. And John suggested A Hard Day's Night because it was a phrase that Ringo used when they would have a long day in the studio. A Ringoism. It was a Ringoism. One of, one of the things that Ringo says that doesn't make sense, but makes sense. And everybody kind of just scratches their head and goes, well, that's what Ringo says. So, yeah, one of those things. Yeah, they decided to name the movie that and they go back to them and said, well, we need a song called A Hard Day's Night. And John and Paul went home and the next morning they came in and they played A Hard Day's Night. And, And when you just think about how great that song is, how iconic that song is, and it was just, I mean, it it almost didn't exist. And they were even irritated. They were like, really? You know, they were kind of rolling their eyes that they had to go and do this. And there it comes, right? Amazing. So maybe the greatest, I guess my final thought is maybe the greatest gift that this movie gave us is that song. (laughs) You know, the existence of that song on a whim because they couldn't come up with another title. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. And it works perfectly with that opening sequence. You know, like, I mean, none of the other songs would have worked. There's something about that, kind of that driving you feel it a hard, you know, like you're just feeling it with them, you know? Well, everyone, I hope you've enjoyed this discussion and go off and find your own ways to discuss it and watch it. And uh, yeah, I'll be first of many Beatles movie night discussions. All right. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Nostalgic Future Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at nostalgicfuturepodcast at gmail.com. We may just read your letter on an upcoming show. Follow us on social media, Nostalgic Future Podcast on Facebook, and at Past Future Pod on Twitter. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review to help support what we do. Until next time, remember, the past is the only way forward.
It has been a hard day's night. And I have been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel all right. You know I work all day to get you money to buy you things. And it's worth it just to hear you say, you'll give me everything. That's why I love to come home. Cause when I get you alone, you know I feel 